In the meantime, we're in Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 3 through 8. So please turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, verse 3, or navigate on your device. The topic, Paul emphasizes the importance of thinking about the hope that is awaiting us when we go home to heaven. The title of our message, High Hope, High Hope, It's Home to Heaven We Go. No whistlers. Father, thank you for this time together in your word. We appreciate this little epistle that Paul wrote. We want to get as much out of it as we can. Uh, we don't know when we'll be here again, Lord, studying these verses. It could be a long time, uh, or you could come for us. But, uh, Lord, we want you to invest this time with real meaning, with real power. We'd be different than when we came in, different in a, in a good way, more loving, more gracious, more merciful, ready to share Christ with others. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. So let's start with the word counterintuitive. Something is counterintuitive if it goes against what you believe would be logical or if it goes against common sense. For example, a placebo is a substance or treatment with no therapeutic value. Often in testing medications, one group gets the meds while the other gets a placebo. Sometimes those who receive the placebo nevertheless believe they are improving. This is called the placebo effect. What if you were told outright that your meds were the placebo? Would there still be a placebo effect? A yes answer would be counterintuitive, but it's the right answer. This was shown in a 2010 study involving people with IBS. The researchers wrote, and I quote, our study suggests that openly described placebos, when delivered with a plausible rationale, produce positive results. Here's a more colorful example from the world of Pixar. Doc Hudson's counterintuitive advice to Lightning McQueen regarding dirt track oval racing was, if you're going hard enough left, you'll find yourself turning right. Frustrated, Lightning sarcastically replied, oh, right, that makes perfect sense. Turn right to go left. Yes, thank you. Or should I say, no, thank you, because in opposite world, maybe that really means thank you. Then he promptly ignored Doc's advice, turned left to go left, and crashed on the first turn. What if I told you that the way to being a more loving and effective Christian on earth was to think more about heaven? It seems so counterintuitive that men have created an often used sarcastic slogan. They say that you can be so heavenly minded that you are no earthly good. The Apostle Paul makes an incredible counterintuitive statement in verses 4 and 5 of our text when he says, We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. It was precisely because of their hope in heaven that the Colossians were doing earthly good by growing in their faith toward Jesus and in their love for all the saints. One commentator put it this way, the important thing is to notice that hope produces faith, and faith in turn grows into love. Hope is the root, faith is the plant, love is the fruit. Thus, hope is foundational. Truth be told, we don't think of heaven enough. We need to do it more. Paul will go on to say later in this letter, since you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God, 
Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. And so Paul couldn't be any more clear. The hope of what awaits us in heaven is the absolute foundation for a successful Christian life. That hope will be our focus today, and it should remain that way every day until we are home. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, it's healthy for you to think about the hope that is awaiting you in heaven. And number two, it's helpful for you to think about the hope that is awaiting you in heaven. Let's take a look at about it being healthy in verses three through five. Have you ever read Ulysses by James Joyce? It was a kind of a mandatory thing in college, great novel. If so, you might remember it once contained the longest sentence in English literature, 4,391 4, words. One sentence, 4,391 words. I said was because Joyce's record was surpassed in 2001. Jonathan Coe's The Rotters Club, anybody familiar with that or with that author? I'm not. But he, uh, it, that book contains a sentence with 13,955 words, one sentence. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is probably the longest sentence in the Bible. In our translations, it's broken down into a few sentences, but not so in the original. Our text today, what we call verses 3 through 8, you guessed it, one long sentence, and that's why we're taking it as a unit. And so Paul says in verse 3, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. The language guys say that always describes the giving of thanks, not praying. Whenever Paul did pray for the believers in Colossae, which I'm sure was often, he gave thanks to God because of the radical changes that God had effected in their lives after they heard and received the gospel. And so he didn't pray for them always, but when he prayed for them, he always thanked God for them. No matter your needs and your circumstances, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you can be thankful in them because of what God has done for you. If nothing else, he's saved you. It makes all the difference in the world and obviously in the world to come. And so we can be thankful for what God has done and is doing in and through us. The particular words for his praying could be translated prayed around as if to indicate Paul's prayers surrounded them. I like that. Your prayers for people surround them in the spiritual realm. And the more we pray for them and God puts different things on our hearts, the more we're building that barrier around them and, and that protection around them. Verse 4 begins by saying, since we heard... Epaphras had gone to see Paul, who was under house arrest in Rome uh, for preaching the gospel. He was, uh, wasn't in a dungeon, chained. He was in a, a privately rented home under house arrest. Uh, that's how Paul heard about what was going on in Colossae. Uh, Paul had not founded the church at Colossae. He had never really been there. Epaphras had come to uh, faith in Christ in Ephesus, where Paul had been, and then he took the gospel back and started a church. There were some problems with false teachers in Colossae, and Epaphras needed counsel on how to deal with them. We'll get to them later in the letter. And you can read this letter strictly from the point of view of Paul addressing the false teachers uh, in almost every uh, uh, verse, uh, but we'll get to that in total as, as he brings forth the teaching. In the meantime, we don't want to miss some of these wonderful devotional insights. And so verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love 
for all the saints. Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. Faith and love spring forth from hope. One commentator put it this way. He said, the preposition because uh, or on account of can only be taken as pointing to faith and love as in some sense a response to hope. In some way, hope produces faith and love. Now, the kind of hope we're talking about isn't a feeling of expectation. It is the objective reality of what is securely in store for you in heaven. It's hope in what you know absolutely awaits you in heaven. Not what you hope will be there, but what you know will be there based on what the Bible teaches. Jesus himself obviously will be there, and that's probably all we need to say. Everything else is accumulated in that, but he'll be there, the resurrected and glorified Lord. He awaits you in the future you will see him face to face. And what a glorious thing that will be. More than that, if you, uh, the Bible says you will awake in his likeness, meaning that the work that he began in you at your salvation will culminate in you being glorified as he is. You'll have a perfect body. You'll have a perfect mind. There will be no propensity to sin in that glorified body. And so uh, whether you uh, go home to be with the Lord uh, before his coming to rapture the church or are raptured, uh, you're going to receive a resurrection body that is fit for eternity. It'll be like Jesus' glorified body. Uh, and, and that's a wonderful thing when we uh, consider that as fearfully and wonderfully made as we are, we're all fallen apart. And, uh, you know, uh, there are many, many tragedies, and w whether it's accident or illness or... Uh, those kinds of things, it's a, it'll be a great thing to be free from that. Then the carpenter king, he's building you a house, and it's a mansion. It's in a golden city called the New Jerusalem. You can read its description in the last chapters of the Bible. It's beautiful. He uses all the most precious materials known to man in order to build the city, and your, uh, your home there is going to be even more fantastic. Somewhere in heaven, right now, your rewards for serving the Lord on earth are being stored where no one and nothing can touch it. Uh, now, some of you, uh, I remember I was looking at really old notes uh, of the last time I taught Colossians, I think it was 10 years ago or so, and there was a thing going around then because it was during a recession, I guess, and they said the big joke was that your 401k had turned into a 201k. Because every, remember, you, remember when you lost all your retirement savings? Remember that? Wasn't that fun? And, and so that's the deal on earth. I mean, we do the best we can to bank and invest and preserve, uh, but in a moment, all this stuff is gone. Uh, but not so in heaven. Whatever you have stored up for you in heaven is waiting there for you in an incorruptible state. You'll be reunited with believing loved ones. What a joy that will be. And... I just like to tack this on, you'll never cry again. Uh, I don't know if you like crying and sorrow and having your heart broken. I doubt that you do. But when we get to heaven, there will be no more tears. And that's a wonderful thing. And we could go on and on. The point Paul was making is this. The hope that awaits us in heaven is immensely practical for our time on earth. It seems to awaken faith and inspire love. It's counterintuitive. It seems like hope in heaven is an escapism 
that would cause withdrawal from our responsibilities on earth. But Paul says it's just the opposite. The more we set our minds on things in heaven, the more it will result in practical faith and love. Now, in a more affluent, free, modern society like ours, and I'm not making apologies for it. I, I love living in the United States. I think it's the greatest country on earth. But it can be really hard to focus on heaven. It's there more like a reward at the end because life is, quite honestly, mostly enjoyable. Uh, we're not subject to the kinds of persecutions and stresses that uh, not only the rest of the world currently is, but certainly these apostles. And so it's hard for us to think every day, hey, in this wonderful, beautiful situation I have, I need to think about heaven. But as a result, we get distracted by life and we rarely think of afterlife. If what Paul is saying is true, and it is, if we are not fixated on heaven, our faith in Jesus and love for the saints is falling short. That's simple. If Paul says, because of hope, you have love and faith, and the hope is what awaits us in the future, if I'm not focused on that, then it can't be producing love and faith, not to the degree that God wants it to. What does faith that is awakened by hope act like? Well, there's a lot of things that we could uh, talk about, but uh, one thing that came to my mind is that Paul exampled it as a longing in the heart to see Jesus, a strong desire to be with him. Always keep in mind that Paul was a to live is Christ, to die is gain sort of believer. I see that as kind of almost the theme of Paul's life. If you ask Paul, you know, like we do, hey, how you doing? I think Paul would say, well, for me to live is Christ, I'm serving the Lord, but if I died, that would be a great gain. That's what I'm really looking forward to. I want to be with the Lord. He had the healthy desire to depart this life and to be with the Lord, and he said that would be far better. And it is, obviously. The Colossians, because of their hope, must have had similar faith. If you were around the Colossians, you got the distinct impression that they couldn't wait to see Jesus, and they were going to serve him as hard as they could until that day came. What does love for all the saints act like when it is inspired by hope? Well, there's a lot of things we could focus on, but one of the things Paul demonstrated it, it was how he ministered to folks who were suffering. When members of the church in Thessalonica, for example, were dying, Paul directed their thoughts to the hope of the Lord's coming to resurrect and rapture the church. And so members of that church were dying and the people were struggling with it, obviously, as, as we always do. And Paul said, well, here's how I want you to think. I want you to think about how the Lord is coming and how they will be raised from the dead and how you will have a glorious new transformed body at the rapture. He told them, go ahead and sorrow, but don't do it as those without this ultimate hope. I want to say this carefully and respectfully this morning, and I think, uh, I think you guys know where I'm coming from. We too often want to give believers hope on the earth. We don't like their affliction. We object to their suffering. So we encourage them either directly or indirectly that God is going to take it away, that things will return to normal. But that can be a false hope. And there's really nothing worse than a false hope. Sometimes God heals. Most times he does not. If I love the saints, I will pray hard for healing, but I will simultaneously seek to elevate their gaze to heaven, assuring them that their light affliction 
which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Jeremiah, I think it's Jeremiah 17, 14, he says to the Lord, heal me, Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved. And then he talks about praising the Lord. And in context, of course, he's talking about something a little bit different. But the way I read that is that if the Lord absolutely could heal me, could heal anyone, but if he chooses not to, then I'm saved. I'm healed eternally. I'm with him in heaven. And so we need to exude this kind of future confidence and avoid giving a false hope uh, that everything is going to be all right. Our light affliction is but for a moment. It's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Paul said, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. There were in the church false teachers who were convincing the Colossians that there were things they lacked, spiritual things. We'll see that they talked about keeping certain rules and regulations and practices from Judaism and other places. Uh, But that wasn't true. Uh, Paul says, you heard, and the word is, you heard this before. It's a deliberate choice of verb. It undermines any notion that the believers were deficient in their walk with the Lord. In other words, in the past, they heard the gospel, and there was no further secret knowledge to be achieved. Everything they needed was in the gospel. It wasn't the gospel or Jesus plus something else. Now, as we talk in the book, there's room for growing in the Christian life, but it has nothing to do with deficiencies in the message itself. Paul was not alone among the apostles in calling attention to hope. The apostle Peter said, and this is from 1 Peter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And so Peter says, you've been born again, you have a living hope that you have an inheritance in heaven, very similar to what Paul is telling the Colossians. Then Peter goes on to say, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. These guys were future-oriented. Hope was a lot more foundational to their writing and preaching than we normally think. I know what you're thinking. Doesn't Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, 13 say, and now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is what? Love. And so why am I emphasizing hope? I'm not. Paul is, so why is he? Well, think about it for a moment. He says, now abide faith, hope, and love. In the future, in heaven, that will change. When you get to heaven, you won't need hope because all the things you hoped for will be realized. You won't hope that you get a mansion in heaven. You'll be living in it. So hope is going to fade. When you get to heaven, you won't need faith because all the things you couldn't see you'll be able to see. You don't have to have faith in Jesus Christ because you're with Jesus Christ. Hope and faith will therefore be fulfilled. Love, however, will be the very air you breathe in heaven because God's nature is love. And so the greatest is love, but right now what is foundational for helping to produce that love is hope. And so today, right now, and for the rest of your life on earth, hope in heaven and what awaits you there ought to guide your life. To the extent that it does, you're going to grow in faith in Jesus and in love for all the saints. Thus, hope is the true indicator of spiritual health. Second, verses 6 through 8, 
it's helpful for you to think about the hope that is awaiting you in heaven. Lightning McQueen spent quite a bit of time ignoring Doc's advice. He kept turning left to go left, crashing each time. He finally got it and became quite the dirt track racer. There's a lot you can do to grow in the Lord. I googled, how do I grow in Jesus? And this was the first list I encountered. All of them were similar, but uh, this list says, go to God daily in prayer, read God's word daily, obey God moment by moment, witness for Christ by your life and words, trust God for every detail of your life, and allow the Holy Spirit to control and empower your daily life and witness. Those are all great things. I would add to any list that you should be active in your local church. We tend to be individualistic in our approach to growth. We, all these lists usually just talk about how can I grow and, as if I am somehow separate from the body of Christ. But it's clear in the New Testament we're meant to meet together. If you're in Christ, you're called a living stone meant to be strategically placed by Jesus into the building of his temple on earth. If you're in Christ, you're a member of his body on the earth. Just as with the members of your own human body, there needs to be a connection and a coordination. I couldn't find any list that mentioned the hope which is laid up for you in heaven as a crucial thing to growing in Jesus, which is weird because it clearly was foundational to faith and love in the apostles' doctrine. I think, I don't know what list Paul would give. You say, Paul, give me a list of how I grow in Jesus Christ. I don't know what everything that would be on there, but one thing would be is the hope that awaits you in heaven because that's what he says in this epistle. In verse 5, Paul mentioned the gospel. What is the gospel? That's a decent question. Well, he defined it when he wrote to the church at Corinth. He said this, Brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which you received and in which you stand, and you by it are saved. He says, I deliver to you, first of all, that which I received, that Christ died for sins according to the Scripture, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And so the bare bones, basic, bottom line gospel is that Jesus Christ died, rose from the dead in order to be the substitute and sacrifice for the sins of lost mankind. You and I are sinners. Nothing we can do that can make us right before God. We need to be saved. Jesus came as God in human flesh to die as our substitute on the cross. He rose from the dead, validating his ability to save you for eternity. And so Paul came with that very simple message, and the Holy Spirit empowered that message, freed the will of the hearts of individuals to make a decision and many had decided for Christ in Ephesus, and Epaphras had taken that message back, and many were deciding for Christ in Colossae. And so verse 6, which has come to you, as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit, as it also is among you since the day you heard and knew of the grace of God in truth. And so Paul took them back to the day that they got saved. An ordinary man, Epaphras, returned from Ephesus, having been changed radically changed by the grace of God in truth. He had believed the truth that salvation was God's gift of grace. And like many of us who were saved later in life, a radical, amazing change came over him. He began to tell his family and friends what had happened to him and what had happened in him. Other people in Colossae, Colossae began to get saved. The gospel of God's grace was thus bringing forth fruit. Uh, just one man 
talking to other men, bringing forth this fruit. But not just locally in Colossae. Epaphras had brought it to that city, but others were then spreading the good news to every other city in the known world. Wherever the message was sent by God, it was sufficient to save people. It is never deficient, but is always everywhere the power of God to salvation. It needs no aids, no helps to prop it up. Its simplicity is awesome. In addition to what God does in you through the gospel, he does things through you once you're saved. And so using Epaphras as an example, Paul shows what God does through you and every other believer. In verse 7, as you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. The word learned indicates he taught them what he knew. We dress this up by saying he discipled them. Don't think that discipleship is something you can't do or that needs to have a certain program in order to do it. Even an average Joe like Epaphras could affect amazing changes in the lives of others. It's the message, not the messenger, that's important. I remember one of the first messages I heard as a young Christian, a brand new Christian, uh, Calvary Chapel of Riverside, which is now Harvest Christian Fellowship, who uh, I've, Paul Havsgard, I think, was teaching. And he said, if you know John 3.16 and you are saved, then you know enough to share the gospel with somebody else. In other words, is isn't necessarily the depth of knowledge, because everything kind of comes back to that anyway, right? I mean, you can preach about just about anything from John 3.16, but the idea is that you don't have to get saved and then study a whole bunch before you can start talking about Jesus. You can't answer everybody's questions, but their questions are mostly fake anyway. The real question is, are you going to go to heaven when you die? Uh, and so they can throw all these smoke screens and curveballs at you, but that's not the real issue. And so you know enough to be saved, then you know enough to share with others and open their heart to the gospel. And so it's not about learning or waiting or a program. It's just about being excited and sharing Christ with others and saying, hey, this is, uh, it's as simple as just saying, hey, I, I, uh, I went to Ephesus on business and I, went, I saw this guy preaching in the street and he said this and, and all of a sudden I was crying and weeping, repenting of my sin and I received God the Holy Spirit in my heart and I'm a totally different person. That, that's basically discipleship as you continue to spread that information. Uh, understand that Epaphras was just a guy who God changed through the gospel. Colossians were just like him and vice versa. Thus his description is what the gospel can do through each of us and every other believer. It makes you a fellow servant. The particular word means a joint slave. You are God's slave, but so is every other believer. Though we have different gifts and are called to various ministries, we're all equal as slaves, and we're jointly slaves in God's great household of faith. The gospel makes you a minister. This is a really fun word. It's where we get the word deacon from, but it's from two words that mean through and dust. And the idea seems to be that you serve with such zeal and enthusiasm that you create dust as you move. Whereas we're talking about a culture where there were dirt roads and you know, dirt was prominent. Everything wasn't grass and asphalt and you know, those kinds of things. And so uh, the, the idea of a minister was somebody who is working so fervently for God that they kicked up dust wherever they went. All of us are capable of kicking up dust in our serving. Uh, 
Epaphras did, and he's called faithful. It's a commendation, but it's one we can all be happy about. You see, God doesn't expect me to be great or to accomplish great things. All he asks is that I be faithful and that it is something definitely within my reach. Any one of us at any time can be faithful. It isn't hard to accomplish. If I'm not being faithful, I just need to recognize it and adjust. I was going to use the example of getting to work on time, uh, you know, just as a basic you know, thing in life, you, you, you get to work on time. But I realized over the last few years, the more I talk to young people, they don't get to work on time. It, it, and, and they always say the same thing. It's, it's universal. I said, I said, they'll say something like, my boss is mad at me because I didn't get to work on time. And I'll say, well, what happened? My alarm didn't go off. So their idea is that if my alarm doesn't go off, it's not my fault that I wasn't at work on time. So how can you hold that against me? I mean, there, there's the alarm, it's not going off. Whether I said it or not, it's not going off. And I, I got to work when I could. What's the big problem? And so that doesn't work as a, as, as a thing, you know? I mean, because basically, you know, some of us come from an era where you actually got to work on time. Or, hey, you know what? You got to work early. Oh my gosh, I can't believe he said that. I'm going to blow people's minds, get to work early and leave late. Do it for God. Yeah, I don't know about that. And so anyway, all of us can be faithful. You don't have to do a lot, but what you sign on to do, do it and do it faithfully. And that's, a, 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 that's it's, it's a faithful steward is what God is looking for. You don't have to, you don't have to lead millions of people to Christ like Billy Graham uh, you just have to serve God faithfully in the position he's put you in. Paul qualifies Epaphras as serving by saying it was on their behalf. The gospel had made Epaphras like his master. Its effect was to cause him to want to serve rather than be served. One of the great effects of the grace of God is to overcome personal selfishness. When Christ rules rather than self, marriages and families and relationships and churches and everything else that is redeemed and restored works right. Um, most of our problems, our interrelational problems, uh, stem from some personal selfishness or unwillingness to lay down our rights and that kind of a thing. And um, we need to look at Jesus, obviously, who left heaven, not thinking it was a, something to hang on to uh, in order to serve us in a way that was amazing and pure, dying uh, in our place for us and then rising from the dead. Verse eight, who also declared to us your love in the spirit. One paraphrased translation puts it this way, Epaphras is the one who told you how thoroughly love had been worked into your lives by the spirit. And so little by little, day by day, the indwelling Holy Spirit works in your life. His work in you is described elsewhere as producing the fruit of love. Now, I'm no gardener, but I know that things like soil and watering are important elements if I want my trees to produce fruit. In the spiritual realm, Paul seems in this long sentence to be strongly suggesting that the hope which awaits us in heaven is a crucial element, maybe the, the most crucial element, if we are to manifest the fruit of love. And, and so, as I said earlier, uh, I'm not sure how often we actually think about heaven in, unless it's a footnote 
Uh, I know I'm going to go there. Um, you know, I, I'll get there eventually. I have security in that. Uh, in the meantime, I need to focus on earth and doing good on earth. Uh, and, um, you know, we, we talk a lot about prophecy. And prophecy isn't the only way that you express a hope in the future. But uh, a lot of churches have gotten away from Bible prophecy and thinking about the, the future that Jesus has, has mapped out because they think that we need to be more practical and that the world needs to see more social justice and more programs and they, they need to see that, that being a Christian makes a difference right now. And you know what? They're right. Being a Christian does make a difference right now, but Paul says, but it's precisely by thinking about heaven and the hope that awaits you there that you are a better Christian. You can't divorce the two. You can't concentrate on the earth. Uh, you, you know, you, you have to promote heaven. And as I said, it's counterintuitive. But it's what Paul said directly, and it's what all the other apostles believed. Uh, you read it in their writings, even though they didn't say it directly. Until you begin to focus on the hope which awaits you in heaven, you're going to be turning left to go left. And you simply won't make any real progress in your walk with the Lord. Uh, Charles Swindoll wrote a book years ago. I can't remember what its foundation was, but it was two steps forward, one step back. And he talked about how we make progress, but then we fall back. But as long as we're making progress, that's good. Uh, Paul would say, unless you have a solid, everyday longing for heaven, unless you adopt my philosophy that to live is Christ and to die is gain, uh, you're not going to make progress in faith and love. You might think you are. People might say that you're a wonderful Christian, uh, but the real progress comes when your focus is on heaven. And, and that's, I keep emphasizing that because, because it is so counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense. But you step back and you think, who accomplished more in the first century uh, was it Paul and Peter and these guys? They turned the world upside down by having this hope. And so look to heaven in order to live on earth. Let's pray.